for better or for worse, human beings are imitators by nature. From our earliest moments, we are observing the world around us, the habits of our parents, their movements, the sounds they make, and we imitate. Aristotle says that imitation is natural to man from childhood. One of his advantages over the lower animals being this, that he is the most imitative creature in the world and learns it first by imitation. Now, I don't want you guys to think I'm at home studying Aristotle. That was a quick Google search that I pulled that one up from. The poet Oscar Wilde said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness. On first hearing that, it kind of sounded a little arrogant, right? But the more we think about it, the more sense it begins to make. So, so I'm a guitar player. I've, I've played before up here. And, and as a kid, I would sit in my room for hours playing along to and learning the guitar solos of people like Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Chuck Berry. In fact, the reason why I wanted to learn how to play guitar was because I desperately wanted to learn how to play Johnny B. Good. Now, if anyone has seen Back to the Future, that was like my favorite scene in the entire world. And, and all I did was play my guitar. And eventually, I started to sound a little bit like those guys. But the truth of the matter is that as close as I got to sounding like them, it would always be a copy. Never the original. My playing was an imitation of what they were able to do, of what they created. And in the words of Oscar Wilde, it was my mediocre tribute to their greatness. Now, I bring that all up because as we look at this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, imitation is going to be a key theme that journeys with us throughout our study. So in the same way that Philippi was a colony of Rome, called to imitate and represent her cultures and her values, the Philippian church and her members were called to do the very same thing for the kingdom of our Lord. To be holy or to be considered a saint in and of itself is a picture of imitation as our holiness and our sainthood is derived from the holiness of God. For those of you who were able to watch the overview from the Bible Project, what you probably noticed was that the entire message of the book of Philippians revolves around the portrait of Christ found in chapter 2. A portrait placed at the center of the book to serve as a picture we are to model our lives after. Have this mind among you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, to live as citizens of heaven in Christ is to imitate the person and work of Jesus. A calling we can only fulfill through the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. And as we sang about this morning, the amazing grace of of God. But before we get there, there's still some unpacking that we need to do. So some more background on the book of Philippians. Last week, we spent a considerable amount of time unpacking the cultural and historical backdrop of the letter. If you missed that sermon last week, I would encourage you to go online and listen to it because we talked a lot about a lot of historical context for the book of Philippians. We learned that Philippi was a colony of Rome that was particularly influential with a distinctly Roman history and culture. Rome away from Rome, as one scholar puts it. 
It was a colony that valued honor and status, and while the majority of its inhabitants were non-citizens, seated nowhere near the upper echelon of society, it was the upper echelon of society that determined how this colony functioned. And like I just said, honor and status meant everything, which is what made Paul's visit in Acts 16 so massively important. And what we labeled as a conflict of citizenship, and I'm going to be using that phrase probably throughout the course of our study over the next number of months, Paul laid aside his status as a Roman by leaning into his identity as a follower of Jesus. He allowed himself, if you remember, to be treated as a slave, beaten and imprisoned, which placed him on equal footing with the majority of the city, displaying the essence of the kingdom of heaven as a place where all are welcomed by the grace and mercy of God. Now, when it comes to the letter itself, as I mentioned, it was written by the Apostle Paul. It has been categorized as one of Paul's prison epistles, along with Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. There's a little bit of debate on the dating of the letter. Some scholars believe it was written from Rome during the early 60s, while others argue for a mid-50s date during his imprisonment at Ephesus. Either way, Paul was in prison. The letter has been categorized as what's been called a friendship letter, and it was written to express Paul's gratitude for the financial support arriving through Epaphroditus. And so what we know about Paul and the Philippians is that he was very close with this church. There was an intimacy there. And so he writes to them as, as family, as friends, as someone who was, who was intimately acquainted with him. And so the point is that Paul has a special relationship with this church, and he's writing to express his gratitude and to encourage them as they continue living out their faith in a context that was not necessarily friendly to the people of God. All right? This is all important stuff for us to keep in the background as we're reading through this letter and studying through the text. So, so verse 1, slaves of Christ, the second point in your outline. We only have two verses to cover this morning. And while it's only Paul's greeting to the church, it is no ordinary greeting. I'd just like to read it really quick. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a beautiful quote from a book I've been working through called Dwelling with the Philippians. It says this, in one simple phrase, Paul proclaims the good news. We are God's people, united and made holy, receiving everything we need from our lovingly, loving Heavenly Father and the one by whom he made himself known to us. And so a couple of observations from this text here. The letter starts with both Paul and Timothy identifying themselves while Paul is the primary speaker throughout the letter, Timothy was important to the church, another friend. We know that Timothy was close to the church, as it says in chapter 2. And we also know that Timothy was there when the church was founded, as we saw back in Acts chapter 16. And so this is kind of likened to the fact, um, to, to an example that I kind of thought of is, I'm supposed to see Daniel Nelms this week. That might get canceled, I'm not really sure. For those of you who don't know, don't know Daniel, he used to serve as one of the pastors here. And so this would be like next Sunday I come in and, and tell you, hey guys, Daniel says hello. That's kind of what's happening here. Paul's basically saying, you know Timothy, your friend, your brother, he says hello. But now let's get down to business. 
Remember, it's a friendship letter. Paul then identifies as a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, most translations, just as we see here in our ESV, translate the term as servant. But the more accurate translation would be to translate the word as slaves. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. This is important. This is really important. See, this is actually pretty uncommon for Paul. In fact, Paul only identifies himself as a slave during his greeting in two other places. The book of Romans, which is interesting. He's writing to Rome at that particular point. And in his personal letter to Titus, Paul, before he even gets into the meat and potatoes of his letter, is already preaching an important message to the Philippian church. If any one of you are tempted to adopt this self-promoting nature of, of Rome, of your, name, of your neighbors. Let me remind you that we are of a different world. A world where humility reigns, where the last become first and the poor and broken are marked by blessing. In fact, the only other place in this entire letter where this word shows up is in Paul's description of Christ as one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave. Remember, Philippians 2 is the central point of this book, and it just kind of shoots out everywhere throughout the text. And right here, Paul is already foreshadowing on where he's taking us in this journey. He's lifting language right from what has been known throughout Christian history as the Christ hymn. And he's putting it right there in the greeting for us to see. Now, the thing about slavery, to be a slave in the ancient world, while different from the forms of slavery we have seen in our own country's history, it still meant that you were not your own. You did not have freedom to come and go as you pleased. And you did not have the rights of a citizen. That's massively important that we catch that. You did not have the rights of a citizen. You were at the lower end of the food chain. And so Paul, in calling himself a slave of Christ, he's doing two things. First, he's letting the Philippian church know that he belongs to Christ. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Those of us who have bent our knee to King Jesus, those of us who have put our faith in the risen Lord that we just sang about, we are not our own. We belong to Christ. We belong to our King. We are slaves of Christ. We are slaves of Christ. Christ. And, and it's interesting, this whole servant of God or servant of Christ language is, is also reflected in the Old Testament that we see there are various people who take up this, this title, servant of the Lord. And, and the church embodies this in Christ. We embody this servant of the Lord. But second, if you are a member of this church, this is key, and you did not occupy a position of honor or status in the city, which is most likely the majority of them, imagine hearing the great Apostle Paul being read, this letter being read in church on the Lord's Day. Probably everyone's excited. Like, Paul wrote us a letter. Remember Paul? He was here a number of years back. He planted this church. He spent some time with us. We got a letter from him today. 
And he opens up the letter. Whoever is the, the pastor or elder at that church opens up the letter, reads these words. And the first lines that come out, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul is identifying himself as someone on equal footing with you. On equal footing with you. What's Paul doing? He's imitating Christ. He's imitating Christ. He's identifying himself with the lowly, stepping into their world. That's what Jesus did, Redeemer Fellowship. That's what Jesus did when he clothed himself in humanity. And, and, and remember, as Jesus entered into this world, he didn't enter in as, as someone who was high and lifted up. He entered in as like some backwoods dude from Nazareth. That's important. He went to the lowest rung of the ladder when he entered into this world, or one of the lower rungs on the ladder. That's the model that Jesus puts forth. And Paul, just in these couple of words, is imitating the very nature of Christ. He's calling us to do likewise, but we're not there yet. There's more. He identifies himself as a slave, and then he addresses all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Now, I'm going to deal with this section kind of in reverse, so, so follow me here. All right, so he identifies himself as a slave, but then he identifies the leaders of the church by their office. That's important. That's important. Remember, Philippi was a place where honor and status reigned. No one demoted themselves. Everyone exalted themselves. That's what it was like to be a Roman. So he identifies the leaders of the church by their office, but he identifies himself as a slave. What's the point? In a culture where everyone was after their own honor and glory, Paul is lifting up the overseers and the deacons and is, in a sense, placing them at a level above himself. Right? This should remind us of another verse from Philippians. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul, once again, is modeling the mind of Christ. But he doesn't leave it there, which is so fascinating. He addresses all the saints who are, what's the word, with the overseers and the deacons. With the overseers and the deacons. They are not under the overseers and the deacons. They are not behind the overseers and the deacons. They are not subservient to the overseers and the deacons. They are with the overseers and the deacons. And, and while he makes it a point to speak a word of honor to them, he's also reminding them that their role as leaders in the church is a role of self-giving service. The church will not operate like the Roman world. You are citizens of heaven, representatives of a king and a kingdom, which is shaped by the cross of Jesus. That, I mean, I studied that this, this, this week, and, and I was trembling as, as, as pastor of this church, as, as lead pastor. I'm like, whoa, okay, take it easy, website. You know, like, <laughs> I'm trembling. I'm like, okay, like, that means something for us, and, and this is a word for the elders right now. This means something for us as leaders in this church, that, that we're not the, the kings of this place. It's not like what I say goes. We are shepherds. We are servants. And, and as we see, Paul writes elsewhere, 
We are to mutually submit to one another on the team and, and to the body here at Redeemer Fellowship. That's a heavy burden that we are to carry as your pastors. And, and my prayer is that if, if you see me not carrying that burden in the way that Paul articulates here, that you would come talk to me. That you would come talk to me. Continuing to move backwards, the letter is addressed to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Now, saints is one of those words that's, that's tough for us sometimes to wrap our minds around. Um, some of us come from traditions where we hear that word saint and we, and we think of a completely different idea. Some of us are perfectly comfortable with the word saint. Some of us are perfectly comfortable with certain people being called saints, whatever the case may be. But to be a saint here as we see it in the text, or more literally, is to be a holy one, one who is holy. And, and to be a holy one does not necessarily imply that you are moral, morally superior to anyone. That's important. To be identified as holy does not mean we are morally superior, but rather it means that we have been called out from the rest of the world and we now belong to God. It's the same language used to describe Israel in the Old Testament, that they were to be a holy nation, set apart. And it's pretty clear that as we read through the Old Testament, they were not exactly a morally superior nation. Maybe sometimes they, they were, but often they were just like the rest of the nations. To be a saint means that you are in Christ Jesus, or as we've talked about, you are in union with Christ, meaning that all that we are is hidden in Christ, and the righteousness of our king is now attributed to us. We are holy because he is holy. We are holy because he is holy. And finally, to be a saint means that not only is our life hidden with Christ and we possess the righteousness of Jesus and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but it also means that we are of a different world, a heavenly world, a citizen of the kingdom of God. I mean, that's the title of our sermon series, Citizens of Heaven. And that theme is going to keep coming up throughout the text throughout the entire course of this letter. What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? What does it mean to be a slave of Christ? How does that impact the way we live our lives in a world that is opposed to those who identify with the kingdom of heaven? As one scholar puts it, given Philippi's status as a Roman military colony, it may be that in Christ and in Philippi can be read as setting up the two political realms vying for the allegiance of the Philippian Christians, who ultimately are reminded that their commonwealth is in heaven. If Christ's lordship is to have any material reality in the present, then there must also be a community of people whose faith and practice whose hope and desires, whose very life and death are shaped by their allegiance to their Lord. In other words, as followers of Jesus, our heavenly citizenship will always be in conflict with any other allegiances we possess here in this life, which means we will always be at odds with the world and its system. That's just what it means to be a follower of Jesus. 
And so we see this idea, once again, it's coming up. Conflict of citizenship to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. It's en Christo and en Philippi. That's what it says there. And, and Paul is, is intentionally putting those two things together. I get that you live in Philippi. I get that you have to function in a certain way. But never forget that before anything, you are in Christ. I get that we live in New Jersey. I get that we belong to the United States of America. But before any of that, I get that we belong to a particular family. I get that we have a certain heritage and a certain culture. I get all of that. But before any of that, and the only way we are to live out our other citizenships is if they are all subservient and bowing in submission to our citizenship in heaven and in Christ. That's what Philippians is getting at. That's what we're going to see unpacked throughout the course of this study. A conflict of citizenship. And we have to decide, both individually and corporately, are we going to bow to Christ or every other thing that's calling for our allegiance? This is a daily decision that we make individually, minute by minute sometimes. And it has implications for even just some sinful patterns that you might have in your life. We're always trying to bow to some other Lord or God. Some are stronger than others. And Paul is saying right out the gate, you are in Christ first. Massively important for us to wrap our minds around. And so as we move forward into verse 2, the heavenly citizenship we possess is a, is a citizenship marked by the grace and peace of our common Father and our Lord Jesus. So it says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is, is the normal term for grace that we see everywhere, and so is peace. But, but peace is also the word used to translate shalom in the Old Testament. And so what Paul is offering, which can only be achieved through Christ, is, is, this, is this peace that transcends everything. It's, it's, this, it's this holistic peace that's, that's full-bodied peace. It's, it's that your life may go well and that you might flourish in the land. Shalom. That's what he's getting at there. But notice a couple things. Notice that Paul identifies Jesus Christ as what? Lord. Lord. And I said this last week, but I'll say it again. I'm going to probably say it throughout the course of the series. In the words of N.T. Wright, to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Caesar is not. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Caesar is not. And this again brings up the issue of allegiance. To whom are we pledging our allegiances to? Our Christian faith will always put us at odds with the world. The second thing, notice that Paul identifies God as our Father. As our Father. This means that regardless of where you stand in your Romanness, to coin a word, or lack thereof, if you are a saint, then you are a child of God, which means that we are all seated at the same table. We're all seated at the same table. 
We talked about this when we worked our way through the Lord's Prayer. To pray our Father is to join with a chorus of voices that stretches across time, space, race, class, ethnicity, and every other man-made boundary placed around humanity. And the only way this thing works is if we recognize that everything we possess and everything we are, when held up against our status as children of God, as citizens of heaven, amount to nothing, and in the words of Paul, but rubbish, and to be more clear, human waste is how he describes it. We are slaves of Christ, which means no one stands above the other in this place. We are saints, holy ones in Christ Jesus, which means we have been called by grace undeservedly into Christ's kingdom. And we all have one God and Father, which means we are all members of the same family of God with Jesus as our elder brother. This is, this is good news. Right? When we proclaim the good news of Jesus, we are proclaiming the person and work of Christ. We're proclaiming that he lived, that Jesus first, that he entered into this world, that he entered into this world, that he lived a life of utter faithfulness, that he was crucified because he identified with the lowest forms of humanity. He was crucified on a Roman cross, the epitome of shame, as we talked about last week. He died and he was buried. And three days later, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. And then he ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all of creation. And in so doing, he, he swung wide open the gates of heaven so that all who call upon the name of Jesus might be saved. And notice some other things that happened when, when Jesus died. The temple was torn in two, so no longer were Jew and Gentile separated from one another. Notice that it says in the book of Ephesians that, that both Jew and Gentile are brought together to make one new man. Again, dividing walls of hostility, being torn to pieces. Dividing walls of hostility between humanity and dividing walls of hostility between us and God. These are the implications of the gospel because the gospel is the story of Jesus, the good news that we tell to people. And then the implications are what it means for us that we are adopted into a family, that we belong to one another and to God. We are slaves of Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what we believe. And that's good news. That's good news, Redeemer Fellowship. I was struck as we were singing this morning, and, and, we, and, and Tara did such a great job of choosing songs that, that spoke about the resurrection. And we didn't even really talk about it. I gave her no direction at all last week. I said, yeah, I said, yeah, we're going to do the first couple verses, so figure it out. <laughs> but, but I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I'm hearing songs about the resurrection. I'm like, I'm like this is why we come on Sunday morning. We come on Sunday morning to be encouraged in the gospel. We come on Sunday morning to be reminded that, that Jesus Christ, though he suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified and was buried, he's now risen and alive and he's seated at the right hand of Almighty God. That's what we need to hear. 
That's what we so desperately need. That's the truth that we need to anchor our lives to. And that truth changes everything because it it transfers us from from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God. That's what it does when we put our faith in Christ. We are of a different world now. We are of a different kingdom. We serve the one true God. And all of us, are being tempted by allegiances wherever we go. Whether it be at work, whether it be in your families, whether it be on the internet, wherever it might be, whether it be as you're watching news at night, whatever news source you watch, people are trying to rip us away. The system, not people so much, although the the system uses people, But the system where where the devil kind of oversees it, the powers and authorities are trying to rip us away from the kingdom of Almighty God. But we need to stand on this foundation that Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. That's the conflict of citizenship. That's what we're going to be wrestling with throughout our time in Philippians. And let's be honest, that's what we wrestle with, period, whether we're in Philippians or any other book of the Bible. That was what Israel wrestled with. Remember when they went into the land, God was very clear with them, like, like hey, be careful. Be careful because if you get involved, you're going to start worshiping their gods. And we read that and we're like, oh, that's so interesting. I would never do that. I would never do that. Right? I mean, my kids, sometimes they say, man, well, why didn't Adam and Eve just not eat the apple? I'm like, and we don't even know if it was an apple. It could have been a pomegranate. I love pomegranates. That'd be hard for me to say no. All of us would have eaten the fruit. All of us would have ran after other gods. And we're still tempted by the same things. There's a regular conflict of citizenship in our lives as we walk through this journey of faith, but we possess the spirit of God now. Oh, it's different now. It is. There's a new covenant in town. It's different. We have the spirit of God, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. And we have forgiveness of sin when we drop the ball, when we give in to those other allegiances. God says, come to me. I will forgive you. Put your faith and trust in me. I will forgive you. And so as we close our time today, my prayer is that we would both be encouraged and challenged. Encouraged that God in his grace and in his mercy has called us to be his. For those of you who don't know of this love and of this mercy, Today is the day of salvation. Jesus, I'm going to repeat some things I've already said. God in the flesh, he died upon a cross. He was raised to new life three days later. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he is seated on the throne, ruling over all of creation. I plead with you, submit yourself to him as both Lord and Savior. And in so doing, he promises that your sins will be forgiven and that you will spend eternity with him. Challenged that those of us who have put our faith and our trust in King Jesus are now called to imitate him. 
It's interesting, faith can actually be translated as allegiance. It's really interesting when you start to think about how the words that these, these New Testament authors used, faith can be translated as allegiance. We are called to imitate it, and granted, our imitations will be at best mediocre when compared to the glory of our king. But we have been called to live lives of humility, loving both God and neighbor, submitting ourselves to one another and recognizing that we are no better than our neighbor. That's hard for us to recognize that. Regardless of where we live, where we're from, the size of our checking accounts, the color of our skin, or whatever it is we might possess, we are no better than our neighbor. We are all invited to this table. And no one sits at the head of this table except King Jesus. My prayer is that over the course of the next three months that God would cultivate in all of us, corporately and individually, the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. This is a journey that I am excited to travel together. I'm looking forward to seeing how God's going to work in and through our church. I'm so encouraged by Redeemer Fellowship. Over the course of these, this last year, how God has been so faithful. And, and, and we've responded in faith. We've responded in faith. Praise the Lord. That's incredible. That's incredible. And I'm not saying that we should all pat ourselves on the back. We should give thanks and praise to our God. We serve a good God who loves us so much. He's called us to be a part of his family. And now he's calling us to live as citizens of heaven, as members of the household of God. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you are good. You are so good. And we are so grateful for how you have been so faithful to us. You've cared for us, Lord. You've nurtured us. You've brought us through difficult seasons. And Father, you remain with us, and we are so grateful for your grace. Father, I pray for us now, Lord. I pray that as we go through our weeks, Lord God, as we even go through this day, that we would be reminded of how you entered into our story and rewrote it and, and brought us into your kingdom. You have made us your children by your grace through your son Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And for that, we are eternally grateful. Father, I pray as we participate in the Lord's Supper this morning that we would be reminded that this table has been feasted at for almost 2,000 years, if not more than 2,000 years. It has been feasted at by people who are from every part of the world, who sit at every level on the social and financial and socioeconomic ladder. Lord, it's the great equalizer, Father, and I pray that we would recognize that. And I pray that we would also recognize that it's a place where we receive grace from your son, Jesus. Father, you are with us at this meal. Your son Jesus is with us at this meal. Our souls are nourished through this, Father. And we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of your son. Thank you so much for that, God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.